Hey, welcome to another Model Railroad Hobbyist podcast. Uh, got your usual crew here. I'm Paul Gillette. Got another fantastic intellectual level conversation planned for tonight. We've got uh, Chris Palomares. And from the fantastic South, specifically North Carolina area, I've got uh, Ken Anderson. Hey. And Joe Belent. Is I. Yes, they are with the Sipping and Switching Society of North Carolina. There you go. I met these gentlemen, and I use the term loosely, at the, what was that, Great American uh, Train Show? World's Greatest Hobby, Charlotte. I was close. Yes, in Charlotte. And their group was there, and I have never seen so many modules or so much track connected in my life. I was just totally blown away. So we got conversing and I wanted to just bring everybody up to speed on just how this group evolved. So how long, let's start out with a basic question. How long have you guys been doing what you're doing? The model railroad, the sipping and switching society. Well, the sipping and switching society, we just started our 27th season with the Charlotte show. Uh, But some of the modules predate that by a great amount. The oldest module is one named Peanut that was built in 1976. So it's a 42-year-old module. Wow. And the Jersey Curves uh, are now on their fifth owner. I originally built them 39 years ago. Uh, I own them now. Yeah, Ken owns them now. Uh, And we still use them. We still use them. They're in most every show. Uh, But the the, the real origins were in in 1975, a group in Raleigh, North Carolina, that was simply known as the Cameron Village Group. We didn't actually have a name. And a man named Joffrey Fisher, who was the manager of the Cameron Village Hobby Shop, kind of sort of herded the cats together so that we could eventually uh, build modules at a later date. And he's the one that came up with the original specifications, which have morphed into what we use now. Um, We're on the fifth generation of specifications uh, as they were finalized more or less in 1991, 92. Okie doke. And about, well, I'm sure you're, the size of the group itself changes about how many participants are there now well there's two levels of participants there are see we're not an official group we're not a club we have no robert's rules of orders we have uh we have no common property no dues uh none of that we're just we're just an association a society and because we don't have an official roster our Group size varies from show to show. We've done shows with as few as two, and as many as and as many as uh, twenty. But a lot of the guys aren't actually members and don't claim to be members. They just show up for one show a year, usually in the city that that show is. But as far as hardcore members, there's no more than twelve of us. Okay. How many total modules are there? Um, somewhere around 220. And the average length of the modules is a little bit 
under nine feet. We have we have a few ten footers and a couple of dozen twelve footers. Most of the rest are eight footers, but we do have a small number of six fours, twos, and even a couple of ones used to fill in the geometry, uh, depending on what shape the layout takes. And and a typical layout. If we get 80% participation, that's more than 16,000 square feet like we were in Raleigh in November. And we never build the same layout twice. There would be no point in that. Uh, so each layout is, uh, is a one-off. It's completely one-off. And we have different themes. On, on shows where we're mostly going to be displaying to people a large group, say at the Charlotte show, then most of the effort will be put into the main lines and leaving voids and spaces for people to walk into the layout and such. If we're doing a fest, uh, which we're going to be doing in, in seven days in Wilmington, North Carolina, uh, we might get 50 visitors, but it's not a show. It's just us set up, and we play trains around the clock for three or four days. And in, in a layout like that, we're not concerned about a crowd because there isn't going to be one. So as much as 50% of the layout might be in branch lines, okay. double-ended branch lines or, or switching districts, single-ended branch lines, and, and we'll operate uh, usually with a switch list. Uh, and we can have as many as, as, as 15 way freights running simultaneously. Wow. Okay. Now, the from... Peanut back in 1976 up to what we have now, the modules, the dominoes, if you will. Has that design changed, that execution, how you make them? Uh, yeah, it, it changed a little bit. Peanut, Peanut was a demonstration module. It was the first eight-footer and the first one that was 30 inches wide, and it was the first one made almost completely out of Luon, uh, but it was built... It was built with diaphragms and, and tendons, much like uh, a wooden airplane wing. And it, it worked, it still works, and it proved the concept, but it was an evolutionary dead end. And very quickly, it was replaced with uh, something that we now call the waffle. Waffle module, yep. And the, the waffle is uh, it's a torque tube where the bottom is relieved so you can reach into the torque tube, and hence the waffle, because it looks like a waffle iron from the bottom. And uh, the overwhelming majority of, of modules now are that way. And the waffle is, is very pliable. It can be made to any curve radius. It can be uh, made into junctions. It can be made wider or narrower. And it also can be deflected up or down. We've got a couple of modules that have cutaways where bridges crossed, uh, cross voids. But we also have a couple of modules, 12-footers that I own, that change grade. It goes from uh, 48 inches, which is our no normal height, up to uh, 51 and a half. Uh, and it's not roadbed on rising above the deck of the module. It, the entire module is warped to fit that grade. It's easier to do it that way. Because we have a set of modules known as the flyovers. They're actually over-under. We can make uh, trains cross over themselves and, and often do. There's a couple of videos online. When we were in the national show in Cleveland in 14, 
there is uh there's a minute and 30 second video of a 145 car coal train crossing over itself okay so on on the modules that are part of a grade mm -hmm. you said something i found odd when you talked about the grade so you're not just using risers along the basic module itself to raise the track. Right. There's no risers on those two modules at all. The the grade is the shape of the module. Okay. How do you do effort. that? How do you do that? Well, uh, a typical module will have four long pieces that we call rails, the two on the outside and the two in the middle. And it will have pieces that form what we call the ribs, sometimes known as the short ribs. And uh, the end pieces, which are made out of three-quarter Baltic birch or similar, the only pieces of significance in the module that aren't five-millimeter Luon. Uh, that forms up the filler. It's, that's the filling in this Oreo cookie. And then you have the deck on top, and then you have the waffle on the bottom. Now, if you cut these four pieces in an, uh, a grade, in this particular case, I've got five inches of level straight coming off the end, and then there is a transition that is uh, 60 inches long. And then there is one foot of pure grade, and then there's a 60-inch transition that goes back to five inches of level. So the grade on this module is 3.65 for a, for a length of one foot. Uh, and the transitions are what make it work, just like on the prototype. You don't want to have an abrupt change in elevation or your right. snow plows dig in or your couplers let go. Uh, and it was just easier to do it that way than to have a tall frontier on one end and have separate uh, roadbed on risers. I just did away with all of the risers. Okay, so at the top where the actual grade piece starts transitioning to the, the finished elevation, what degree radius is that? Oh, it's straight. It's a 12-foot straight module, both of them. You Not go whatever you whatever the, the curve. Track. Oh, at the top end is a standard uh, is a standard plug and play end as well. That is also a standard end. It just happens to be at fifty one and a half instead of forty eight. And it is also possible okay. to put as many standard forty eight modules in there that you want. I have these blocks that are three and a half inch uh, blocks. I put under the wheels of the fold down legs. So we have on occasion carried that altitude as far as 64 feet and then put the other ramp in going down. They don't have to be adjacent to each other. We're, we're so flexible, it's stupid. And we've gotten, we've gotten so used to it. Um, and a, a lot of these design features, and I would like to say is designing most of it, that I designed all of it in, but a lot of it was completely serendipitous. It's like, well, damn, look how that works. We'll take it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, one of the things that happened is several people, Ken being one of them, decided he didn't want to deal with the main lines. He just wanted to deal with uh, with the, the the secondary track, the branch line track on the back, and uh, so he built some modules that have no main lines, which is fine. We don't care. Uh, the only thing 
it means is, is those particular modules can never be in the main line because they haven't got one. Okay, great. We don't care. Well, not long after that came the idea, but what if you only built a half-width module? You only built the back half of the module that has the 21 on it, and you can get more distance that way. Sure. Well, the way the, the, way the, the pegs, the pins on the end of the modules are arranged, you can build a half-spec module. And there are probably 20 of them amongst five owners at this point. So these these half modules will plug into any standard end. Doesn't matter. They'll plug in anywhere. We also it have also, main main only. Uh, right, mainline mini modules too. Suddenly appeared that only have the eight and the ten, and they're fifteen inches wide. And we have in the last five years, on probably a dozen occasions, put a mainline mini next to a branch line mini, and it becomes a full width mainline module complete with the the running back uh, uh, branch. We have even made it to where the scenery, the scenery is is meshed to where these two modules come together. The scenery, except for the the gap between the module, which is about a quarter of an inch, uh, it all blends in together. We've even so went people, that far to do that. Yeah, people walking by looking at it don't even notice it's two separate modules, one front, one back. Uh, and, and our requirements for track, a standard module will have uh, an 8-track, a 10-track, and a 21-track, and that's measured from the front edge to the center line. Oh, okay. But when, when you're playing with us, and we refer to the, those tracks by those numbers, there's an 8-main, a 10-main, and a 21-branch. Now, other modules may have more tracks than that, like through a, through a, a 10- or 12-track yard, and that's fine. Uh, but we only actually require one of those three tracks and don't really care which one. Uh, although if you're only going to do one track, well, the 21 is the easiest one to work into the system. But there are a couple of modules that only have a main line. Typically, it's the 10. Uh, it just makes it harder to fit in. But if you had a module, it's guaranteed it's a branch line only module because it can't be in the main. But it'll plug into any standard end anywhere. We don't care. It's also it's also too, Paul. That, uh, we don't care what code rail you use. If you want to use code 100, yeah, or even code 40, it doesn't matter as long as it meets the RP25, uh, uh, the template uh, uh, rules, uh, how these things are, are uh, designed. We don't physically connect the track at the ends. The, the track comes up to the end, and it's fixed, and it just dead ends in space. And then the next track begins in space, and, oh, damn, they happen to line up. That works. So there's no rail joiners at all. When two modules come together, there are no extra pieces. Wow. Okay. Now, I s tell me how you connect the modules together so f effortlessly each time. Well, the, the, the rules, the, the measurement rules are based on the template that was developed uh, 28 years ago. And the template has four one-inch holes at 5, 10, 20, and 25, and it has at least three tracks, 8, 10, and 21, and maybe more. In that template, we try to keep a, a plus or minus 1,000th tolerance on that, and the manufacturing tolerance on whoever's building the track and everything, we can live with a plus or minus five thousandths tolerance, up, down, left, right. So two modules are offered up against each other. 
the four pins line up. They're usually steel, some are aluminum, never use wood. The wood won't hold a tolerance. You push them together, and there's two C-clamps on the bottom and two plugs, and the plugs are different. One's a Molex, and one is a trailer plug, so you can't mess that up. <laughs> and that's it. That's it. There's no extra pieces. There's no adjustment. There's no height adjustment. In fact, nearly all of the modules are on two-inch office chair wheels, uh, and they're set at 48 inches. Now, if you're in an uneven uh, floor, if you're on an uneven floor, concrete, wood, or otherwise, and two modules come together and they're not quite the same height, we don't care. The high one carries the low one. In any given setup, on any typical industrial floor, 30-40% of the wheels aren't actually touching the floor. And we don't care. And the trains don't care. And you can't make us care. And the reason for that is simple. Is, is that the, the time spent building the layout is time not running the trains. Right. And if your hobby is to set up layouts that take three days to set up, and there have been cases we have observed with great pity people who did that, uh, if that's your hobby, setting up modules, that's great. That's not our hobby. Our hobby is running the trains. And the faster we can set them up, the more we can run. And we do. But even that, the old adage, the old adage, if you have adjustments, you will have to adjust them. They will always be wrong. So we have designed this thing to not have adjustments. We don't have the manpower. And that's what started this whole thing off. 27 years ago, there was only five of us. And yeah. we had we were refugees from other model railroad clubs where if you could set up a layout 24 by 40 with 10 guys in 10 hours, that was a miracle. And it almost never happened because you have to, all the fiddly bits, we got to find the legs, the right ones. We got to adjust them. We got to level this, we got to level that. We got to put this the bridge rails. We, yeah. The bridge rails, the, you know, the rail joiners don't fit. Who's doing that? Why is this thing crooked? And so on and so on and so on. So, we ended up in a situation where I, I'm I'm going to pause just a second and apologize. I used to teach economics at the college level, and people say that that makes your mind funny, and I say no, your mind was funny before you got there. Um, uh, one of the adages of economics is: is people in groups, whether they realize they're doing it or not will maximize their cheapest resource and minimize their most expensive resource, or another, you know, another way of saying economics is common sense made hard. So we were faced with a situation where we didn't have the labor. We just did not have the labor. So what we did have is, for whatever reason, we have way more than our fair share of engineering and construction ability. We do things casually that other clubs can't even try. And it's not our fault. It, it, whatever happened, it happened. The gods smiled, the planets lined up, and away we went. So now we, we end up with this system, which was developed over 15 years, and it's, it's, uh, it's a development-sure system. It's plug-and-play, and it really is. Two guys can connect up two modules and walk away from them ready to run in 20 seconds. Wow. In the process of setting up a layout, 
and our layouts were pretty big in those days. They were as big as 16 by 64. And at that size, no matter where we went, Knoxville, Atlanta, Baltimore, we were the biggest, we were the biggest layout in the hall at 16 by 64. Well, we got branch lines bigger than that now, and here's what happened. If you can put a module together in 20 seconds, we'll spend another 20 minutes and put another 100 of them in there. And that's what happened. That's exactly what happened. At this point, we're not limited by manpower. Five guys five guys can set up a 10,000-square-foot layout in an hour and a half and not break a sweat. We've done it many times. Now the limit becomes how big of a haul can you get and how much transport do you have to haul your modules. We could set up a 30,000-square-foot layout in five hours with 10 guys. We could easily do that. Uh, the fact that we've set up more than two dozen layouts over uh, 15,000 square feet in the last five years. The first big layout was 14,005 in 2011 at the spring show in Baltimore at the Timonium show. That was the first mega show. And it's like, well, damn, that wasn't even hard. And now it's, it's, it's gotten to where it's normal. That one that you saw in Charlotte was 13,500. That's kind of small for us these days. <laughs> I thought it was huge. Nice. <laughs> I thought it was huge. We were 16.5 we just eight weeks before at Raleigh. We were 16.5, and that wasn't all of it. That was still only 80% of our available stock because some of the guys at the last minute, you know, something came up, that the job changed or you know grandma got sick or whatever happened some of the guys couldn't make it so we weren't at full strength then at 16.5 one of our fellows is uh, randy costanza and he has a 40 foot long steel mill scene and a 24 foot coke scene alone and i think he's on uh has another set of modules it's going to be a, a passenger uh, station that he's uh got plans yes. for so in the passenger station is going to be 40 feet long 24 feet of it's already up and and built he's working on the last 16 feet now well that and, uh, all right, so that begs a question so you've got two aspects of this when you're going to a show wherever how do you determine you know, I, I presume that the show management's going to tell you you can have this amount of space then you translate that into a railroad configuration that the people like me will watch trains go around. How do you make that happen? What is that thought process of, well, hey, let's have a branch line here, let's do this, do that? Well, it, it, it's, it's so simple, it's, it's painful. <laughs> oh, uh, we, we have no <laughs> political organization, with one tiny exception. There is this temporary position known as your cruise, cruise director. director your what uh, cruise, cruise director, director <laughs> to reference <laughs> okay. off a love boat yes okay yeah so your cruise director and and what this cruise director will do is will say listen i can get us some space in charlotte in january anybody want to come and say okay fine how much space he says i can get almost fourteen thousand feet so who wants to come so if you say you're coming, you're coming, and if you say you're not, you're not. 
and then the cruise director we all serve at, we all serve at the uh whim of the cruise director the cruise director will design or contract out uh the, the layout based on who said they were coming we show up and when i say we remember this is an every man for himself operation you build the modules you maintain the modules you transport the modules and you pay for the modules we don't care if you bring them in on a, on a mule train or on the back of a camel. But if you say you're coming, you bring them. Right. Uh, so the people show up, and we throw them up on their wheels, and we roll them into the approximate place, and then a crew comes by, and wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, and then the, the wire crew comes in and hooks up the, the electrical system. We're flying. It's, and the cruise director position disappears on teardown on Sunday. And nearly every show has a different cruise director, completely voluntary. We abuse them horribly. They volunteer again anyhow, and that's that's how we organize these shows. <laughs> <laughs> we've right, actually now. built we've built layouts with no plan at all. The ones yeah, that we the used to do them at the fest. Yeah, Joe and I the, used to do them all the time. We did a fest in Goldsboro at 14,000 feet uh, at the YMCA, a triple basketball court, and the guy who got us the room didn't have a plan and didn't tell anybody he didn't have a plan until the trailers and trucks started showing up. And, it's just, and he's like having a meltdown. It was pretty funny. So I said, don't worry. We got this. We got this. So how are we going to build this loud? It's just fine. We'll use the modules in the order they come in the door. <laughs> <laughs> And we did. After a while, we got three guys going this way, three guys going that way. And says, okay, before you get to that wall down there, turn left. And uh, that was about it. And then, and then towards the end, it's uh, it's like, well, we got these modules left over, we can't use. But you know, I see something down there I can use. So you get down there and says, listen, I'll trade you this six footer, this eight footer, and this outside curve for that inside curve and that junction and two minor league pitchers to be named at a later date. How about that? And and so we swap modules and go back and finish up the gaps and you know then we're running. We're running. We've changed layouts in the middle of a show. How so? Well, yes. we were we were set up in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, I think that was a GAT show somewhere around 2001, and yep. uh, we had this giant U-shaped layout and the ends. The scenery didn't match because we didn't take that into consideration. Whoever designed it, so he says, "You know what? The end of that peninsula would look better over there, and the end of that peninsula look better over here." So we broke off a 16-foot wide, 24-foot long piece on both sides on Saturday afternoon and swapped them and hooked them back up, pushing these modules through the crowd, and we're back up and running in less than 10 minutes. And the layout set up around us, their eyeballs were dropping out and rolling around on the floor. It was pretty funny. <laughs> Biggest thing I is we, we had to do was just take the curtains down or the skirting and then move the uh, the, the crowd barriers and uh, unhook the uh, the power supplies and uh, move it around and hook it back all up and it was ready to roll. We did that in Harrisburg, not Harrisburg, uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We did it did it up there one time too. We did it in Richmond. We did it in Baltimore one time. We get around. We've been in Cleveland, Cincinnati, Detroit, Detroit. Atlanta, uh, Knoxville, Norfolk, uh, Columbia, Savannah. We we're we're up and down. We're up and down. 
what do you guys, each member who's saying, okay, I'm going to be at this show and I've got four modules or whatever the number is, are, what's everybody got a trailer behind their SUV yeah. or what? Every, it's like I say, it's every man for themselves. Some guys have trailers, flatbeds, they put tarps on. Some Joe guys have bus. covered trailers. I've got an old school bus with all the seats taken out of it. No kidding. That's ingenious. Yep. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, drove a, I drove an activity bus, an old Chevy, 1978 Chevy activity bus for 10 years that I only paid $900 for. Not only that, my modules live in the bus. That's, it's actually a storage shed that moves occasionally. Okay. The modules never go indoors. <laughs> the modules never go indoors except during a show. Otherwise, they're in the bus. So yeah, I'm good for a show. I just check the oil, make sure the tank's full, turn the key, broom, and I just drive it wherever we're going. I drove that sucker from Boone, North Carolina to Detroit in 2007. Of course, the bus that bus only went 51 miles an hour. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and, and at 51 miles an hour from West North Carolina to Detroit, do you know that Detroit at that speed is on another continent? Yeah. <laughs> yes. And Ken was riding with me. Ken was yep. riding with me. And it was raining. Oh, man, what a trip. It was raining so hard when we went through Charleston, West Virginia. I could have launched a torpedo. It was funny. It yeah. Was <laughs> <laughs> uh, what a scream. And, and and we have a lot of fun. We have a lot of adventures. And, and uh, that's why we do this. You know, there's pictures on the Internet somewhere. They're not our pictures. It's somebody else's pictures of my white activity bus sitting in the middle of the Cobo Center in downtown Detroit. There's a picture of that because the guys who were running it, this is the NMRA Nationals in 07, yes. they only let two vehicles on the floor. My bus and the, and the, uh, the big black box that we carry a lot of loud, those are the only two vehicles they let in that hall were those two because the guys had seen us before. They saw us in Cincinnati, and they knew we could back in there, unload, and drive those suckers out in 10 minutes, and we did. And we That's did. amazing. It's it's all about it's all about efficiency. Uh, like I say, we have traded engineering for manpower. We manpower to us is the is the sacred resource. We just don't have very much of it. So if we can't do it fast, we can't do it. It's got to be quick. Got to be right. super quick. So you've got super control of the track work and the modules the way everything goes together. Mm -hmm. Do you hold the uh, participants, your fellow model railroaders, uh, to certain equipment standards so that, you know, there's not out-of-gauge couplers, blah, blah, blah? Well, if it doesn't uh, run, if it doesn't run, we very quickly determine why it doesn't run. And if the couplers are falling off and the wheels are out-of-gauge, it's pretty obvious pretty fast. (laughs) Something wrong with that car or that engine, take it off. Okay. Because I just noticed in Charlotte there was a gentleman's train going around, and as he followed, he he was very frequently putting uh, cars back on the track. And so he was getting frustrated, and I know how that feels. But I thought, well, maybe the wheels need to be caged or something like that. Well, we we found you know one of the things about running trains nonstop for twenty hours a day for three or four or five days is that you wow. put stresses and strains on equipment you never saw before. Yeah. Uh, especially when you're running 120, 130, 140 car trains, which we often do. 
yeah. is if you've got anything that it's not up to snuff, you know, bad couplers, drooping, drooping coupler boxes, uh, out of gauge wheels, it shows up instantly. But it turns out the number one flaw, particularly in brand new equipment, is none of those things. It's too tight of screws on the trucks. Oh, yes, yes. That's what happens. So the trucks can't, you know, walk back and they can't walk up and down over, over uneven sections and they can't swivel easily. Uh, there, was, uh, there was a proponent, I think it was Lynn Westcott back in the 60s uh, when he was the editor of Model Railroader. Shows you how old I've been driving this stuff. Um, there was this thing called the three-point suspension where you put one truck that swiveled but didn't tip and then the other truck was loose as a goose. And the theory behind it was is the tight truck would keep the, the car from rocking, but the loose truck would, would uh, allow that end of the car to go up and down. And we found out that that doesn't work. That absolutely does not work because the tight truck will not walk up and down over track irregularities. So we have both trucks as loose as they'll go and no problem. But in a nice long train with the couplers are pulled tight, those cars aren't going to wobble anyhow. You can see the videos, many videos of us running long trains, and you don't see a wobbly car in the pile. Okay. We tried, Paul, we tried to, to challenge each other to, 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 you know, have our equipment to operate at high standards. And I can't say that for all of our guys. And, like, again, Maybe one of our fellows is one of our newer guys. I, I don't know. Anything's possible. But on general rule, uh, I can't always speak for Joe, but uh, our equipment usually is pretty pretty well tried and true. We've A lot of our cars have been, you know, put through the rigorous. They've been on the main line, and they've, they've, uh, they've operated pretty well uh, under it's, years it's of It's almost uh, always a new car. It's almost yes. always a new car, and it's almost almost always somebody who's never tried to pull a hundred cars before and finds out that you have to test this stuff. You know, well, it's brand new; it just came out of the box. Yeah, that's why you have to test it because the, the, whoever put this thing together in China wasn't concerned about how it's going to run when it got here. That's up to you, dude. You bought that baby. Uh, but a lot of a lot of the younger guys uh, think it's perfect coming out of the box. I don't I don't know why that happened. Uh, you know, we never thought. You know, when I was building cars in the '50s and '60s, I, I assumed everything out of the box was bad until proven otherwise. But mm, the younger generation seems to think the opposite. Uh, but it, it'll show. I mean, like I say, running 100 car plus trains, if there's any defect in the equipment, you'll notice it instantly. You know, if you got loose couplers or if you got plastic couplers, oh boy, you'll know. You'll know. I guess yes. Well, now, Chris. With your uh, experience with the California modular group, is a lot of this sounding familiar, or it's scary familiar? Okay. <laughs> no, it's it's only in semantics how how things are a little bit different. Some some unfortunate soul finds a, a place to 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 invite people to actually set up modules and. And just like what, what Joe was saying, we everybody visiting kind of gives them grief for about like three days until the setup's over. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, there's a lot that kind of uh, mirrors my experiences uh, with, with modular groups over in California, too. Well, Chris is being ever so modest. You know he's the guy that wrote, wrote the book for Primo. Hmm. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah, that was a long while ago, though. <laughs> they, they still use it. It hasn't changed much. You know, you were the patron saint of Fremo and still are. That uh, everybody who builds Fremo is building a descendant of your spec, and you should be uh, proud of that. There's not many people that can say that. Oh, I, I absolutely am. Uh, I, I just wish that the internet was a little bit more widely used in 1995 when the spec was coming out because there, there would have probably been some consideration had we known, <laughs> you know, that if it had we known Joe and the sipping and switching uh, group of guys that would have made for a quicker setup. But I, I still think that one of, one of the points that slows down both groups is getting the digital system up and running and reliable. Um, there, there's just a lot of black magic kind of around that for large layouts. So there's a lot of truth in that. That's for yep. sure. Yep. We've got three guys who, uh, what we, we call the wire crew and they have built these magic boxes. There is a there is a CPU and a series of boosters, and then there is this big plastic tote that has blue cables coming out of it. And these blue cables can run up to 100 feet, and they plug into the module where they disconnect the, the two plugs, and they plug their two plugs in, and they break up our layout into up to 42 separate blocks. And it's done all in that, one that's shot. That's quite a few. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, uh, and the way they do it, and I'm not an expert on this. I'm I'm in the same category as Chris. It's just you know voodoo. Um, there there are these boards that are about 12 inches tall and about nine inches wide, and on these boards are three um, what would be the correct term uh, modulators, uh, regulators, whatever they are, and it's through those those boards that that the the three tracks, the 8 and the 10 and the 21, are powered through. Now, these boards have LEDs on the back of them, and they will display what the voltage is on that block at that second. In addition to that, they have automatic uh, circuit breakers on them, and attached to the circuit breakers is a little tiny speaker that produces a low-volume tone that our ears are tuned to. Somebody passing by might not even notice it. So if somebody is, you know, runs a switch or, or derails a metal wheel and grounds it out, that block goes down. The voltage drops to three red zeros, and this tone goes off. So if you're near where it happened, you know it was you. What did you just do? Because that's what killed your block. Yeah. So now, now we know where to look, and to you know, who's the only person in that block? You. What did you just do? Well, you know what? I should have thrown that switch before I ran through it. Okay, throw it back. Tone goes away. The re- the reset automatic resets, and now you're showing you know thirteen five instead of zero zero zero, and you're running. Works remarkably well, remarkably. And I had nothing to do with that. I couldn't have built that on a million dollar bet. <laughs> yeah. It- there's there's been just a lot of um I, I, I think it's really easy to push a DCC system to its maximum limit. 
when dealing with a modular layout that scales and can be pretty big and linear too, be just the, the runs of, of wire across, you know, like you're saying, 15,000 square feet, it, it adds up to resistance and uh, DCC systems that are uh, really designed for a smaller layout or a basement size layout. They have no idea what's in store for, you know, a really large layout, you know, and, and, and one that, that changes all the time, you know? Oh yeah. I, I, I would dare say now that I think about it, that uh, we're using, uh, we're using NCE. Um, I dare say that the NCE system has never run a larger layout than ours. I don't know where it would have been if they could have. Uh, and and we definitely push it to the limits. We absolutely push it to the limits. And I don't know what the range on those transmitters are, but I do know they will not transmit from one corner to the other. They won't go that far. No. So we, wow. So we've got receivers in multiple places. And that that's not my doing. That's that's the wire crew's doing. They do it. And I'm so damn glad they do it because I couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what do yep. you do? I mean, when you've got runs like that, that are several thousand feet, how how do those guys control spikes and the nasty things that can happen with long DCC runs? Um, well, let, let's let's say we're talking about the Raleigh layout in November. That layout okay. had uh, about seven thousand feet of track in it of which about 1,150 feet was double-track main line all by itself. Um, when they divided that layout up into 42 blocks, that means that each block had an average of, I can't even do the math in my head, 42 into 7,000. Each block was good for several hundred feet of track. Uh, but that doesn't mean it was that long, because it might have been a yard, you know, multiple tracks. Uh, right. And so when they plug it all together, it just works. It just works. And if there's a failure, it's a local failure. Somebody did something, and that block went down, so they, you know, they come running to that block. Uh, but other than that, it, it just works. It just, they just plug it up, and it works. And uh, That's great. A lot of our guys have... also are using their cell phones. I use a tablet. I've used my cell phone with JMRI. Um, and well, we've been, just, we've pushed up to the limit too. That's yeah, well, that gets the signal back to the CPU. How the signal gets to the CPU doesn't matter to us. If you want to run on an extension cord and plug in your, your, uh, regular, uh, uh, controller that isn't radio. And some people do that, particularly working around yards. Or if you want to use the radio transmitter, that's fine. If you want to use a cell phone and go Wi-Fi to JMRI, that's fine too. And they all coexist simultaneously. Uh, the, it seems to me that the issue is between the CPU and the trains, and that's where the blocks come in, and that's where the monitoring of the different blocks comes in. Uh, and that's I have just about exceeded the limit of my knowledge on the technical aspect and how that works. I it's think like we've also started TV. running out of numbers too, haven't we, Joe? Uh, the number of engines we've had. Yeah, theoretically that system will support 99 engines, but in actuality it only supports about 77. Uh, and we've yeah. had that many engines running on the layout. We've had that many running. 
Well, when you get when you get nearly twelve hundred feet per main line, you can run five eighty car trains one direction and five eighty car trains in the other direction just on the two main lines. That's ten trains. Now you've got the bulk of your track is on the branch lines and on the secondary line. Uh, in ancient times, and the reason our layout's designed the way it is, in ancient times when we set up the the eight and the ten was just moving scenery. Um, you'd set up a 120-car train, run one clockwise, run one counterclockwise, and for the next three or four or five days, the only thing that changes is occasionally you change out the engines, and sometimes not even that. And we actually ran the 21, the other layout, which is the one on the back. That's where all the yards and, and the, the uh, industrial sidings were. And we ran that, and we used a, a very primitive system of control, which we called the floating frontier. And the way it worked is there were toggle switches on the ends of the modules, on, off. And the old modules still have them. We never removed them. And what you did is you brought in your power supply and you plugged it into where you were going to start from, and that would be called your home, home module. module. So you plug into your home module. Okay, fine. Now, if you want to go to the right, the end of this 8-foot module, 12-foot module, whatever it is, you walk over there. And the toggle switches would be down and off. That's the steady state, expected behavior. And you would simply throw a toggle switch up, and now the next module belongs to you. And you run into the next module, and the next module, and the next module, and the next module. And the limit was the next home module, which might be 60 feet away. So you could work that 60 feet up to the next guy's home module, leave cars. In those days, we were using car cards. And you would leave all of the cars in their respective uh, industries, but there would also be an interchange track in there someplace, and you would park a line of cars and leave the car cards and then retreat. And as you retreated, you would simply turn the frontiers off as you crossed them. Now, the other guy, at some later date, at his or her pleasure, can come into that same territory doing exactly the same thing from their side, just turning them on and connecting them to their power supply you know, pick up the cars they want to pick up, pick up the interchange they want to pick up, leave another cut for the other interchange, pick up their car cards, leave you your car cards, and away you go. Now, you put a junction in there, of which we only have 11 of. You put a junction in there, and now three people can have claim to that. And you put two junctions in there, and now you have four people who have claim to that, and so on and so on. And that's how we ran for years. So DCC comes along, and at first it was treated as any other power supply. You got DCC, plug it in here, and we've got uh, frontiers that, that come and go. But if you put two DCC people together, and in those days there were NC people and Digitrax people, you put two DCC people together, then all of the modules between them are just left on, and they run, they run open. And as time went on, more and more people said, you know what, I think there's something to this DCC stuff. And and eventually the, the Digitrax died out and the NCE uh, reigned supreme. So after a while, nearly the entire layout on the secondary is DCC. Okay, great. It works, it works super. And we went from car cards to switch list. Okay, having a great time. And then it's like, well, why don't we use this on the main? And then it it, it very quickly became obvious because there was no provision for that. The back railroad, the operating railroad, didn't even connect with the main lines. There were no connections. So now, well, damn, we're going to have to build some more modules with some connections. And uh, 
so we ended up building another 10 modules for that. And some claim we haven't built enough. Uh, <laughs> uh, May I also add that we also have narrow gauge, so it's HON3. <laughs> so yeah, that's even we, on top of that, too. So Yeah, we got 300 feet of dual gauge and narrow gauge, just in case the rest of it wasn't complicated enough for you. <laughs> <laughs> Now, there are videos. Uh, our buddy Bill Swint lives in Raleigh, has gone through a series of HD GoPro-type cameras that he puts on flat cars and pushes around. He's probably got 50 or 60 of them up on, uh, up on the Internet and under YouTube. I think it's either 16 Dispatch or Dispatch 16. That's his handle, one or the other. I can't remember which. And he's got all kinds of uh, 20, 25, 28-minute-long YouTubes of one of the three tracks at some train show. And if he's running on the 21, suddenly dual gauge appears and runs for hundreds of feet. And we occasionally run it. We used to run it a lot more in the old days. The problem became is that I'm an air gauger, Ken's an air gauger, and a good friend of ours who lives in Blowing Rock, North Carolina, Rick Matar, he's an air gauger, and we comprised the bulk of the modules at one time. So putting together a pretty good sized layout that was mostly dual gauge on the 21, not an issue, and we ran it a lot. But the layout kept expanding, uh, and it's still expanding. There's something like 12 modules under construction as we speak. The new guys aren't narrow-gauge people. Are, so the new modules weren't dual-gauged or narrow-gauged. And now putting together a giant layout, you have to use this curve here and that junction there and so on and so forth to get the geometry to work, and it splits up the dual-gauge. So now you've got chunks of dual gauge spread all over the layout, but there's not enough of them in any one given spot to actually be able to run on unless you make a concerted effort. Now in Charlotte in January, we had uh, a section of the main line that was purposely built to be able to run a loop of narrow gauge, and we did. We did run it. We did the same thing in Raleigh in November. Um, but you know, compared to compared to the 200 plus modules we have, there's only like 40, if that, that have dual gauge on them. But uh, all mine still do. I, st I keep putting it in there, the idea sooner or later somebody's going to eventually run on it. In fact, I had a module that hadn't had, had an air gauge run on it in probably 10 years run on it in Charlotte. <laughs> it just happened. <laughs> it just happened. So uh, it's the narrow gauge DCC as well? Uh, it could be, and, and it was these past two shows. It was originally built at straight DC, and all of the turnouts and diamonds were built electrically isolated. So the, the narrow gauge ran on one DC circuit, and the standard gauge ran on a separate DC circuit, so they ran independently. But that, that's ancient technology, and DCC has done away with any need for that. So they, they have been cross-wired, so that, that function has disappeared. So now it's just DCC. Ah. Plug, it in, plug it in and run it. Got it, got it. Yeah, but we haven't made a lot so, of changes. So, so uh, what shows do you have coming up, Joe? Uh, we're going to set up in Wilmington, North Carolina at the First Baptist Church Recreation Center uh, in seven days. Azalea Fest. Azalea Fest. We'll set up a small lot of 9,000 square feet, um, and we will run 23 and a half hours a day until we have to tear down Saturday night. Is that just for your uh, group then? Yeah, it's just for us. Or if anybody finds out we're there, and we might get as many as 50 visitors, which isn't very many over the course of you know three days, 
if anybody finds out about it, they're welcome to come and and uh, strike up a conversation and you know pick up an engine and a controller and a switch list and have at it. Um, oh, it sounds like fun. Oh, it Glenn is. Fest and, is after that, and that's yeah, in Glenn Denver, Fest North Carolina. Is, uh, Denver, North Carolina, which is 350 miles away from Wilmington. Uh, that's coming up in uh, June, June, I think, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, June. it's coming up in June, and then we're doing another fest in Goldsboro, which is about halfway between. That's at the YMCA in in Goldsboro, uh, which is about 50 miles southeast of Raleigh, and uh, uh, that's uh, first weekend in August. And then we do our traditional train show in Raleigh at the fairgrounds uh, first weekend in November, and uh, that's where we can be up to 20,000 feet. But that's a regular oh my train gosh. show. 20,000 feet? Well, we were only we were only 3,500 feet shy of being 20,000 the last time. And not everybody could make <laughs> it. Uh, if everybody could have made it, we could have been 20,000 easy. Uh, but wow. we're flexible. We're flexible. And, and, and uh, yeah, and it's, it's, gotten, it's gotten kind of strange. You know, you tend to judge by your own standards, because what other standards could you possibly use? So we've gotten used in the last 27 years on the way we do it, and we're amazed that uh, other people do it the way they do it. Like setting up in Baltimore, uh, uh, Howard Zane and, and the Timonium Show, great bunch of guys. It's, that's probably one of the friendliest train shows we've ever been to. Just just absolutely salt of the earth kind of people. And I miss it. We haven't been there since the mega show of 2011, partly because – we have shifted towards the fest versus the full-blown train show. And the reason is, is that we get to play with our stuff. Longer. Sounds like a, like a, 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 a Carlin routine, doesn't it? George Carlin, you know, your stuff and my stuff. Anyhow, we get to play with our stuff, and we don't have to deal with the baby stroller drag races and the people asking questions and all that, which is, you know, that's a different thing and it, it, that can be fun too charlotte and also the show hours you know it's only but open if, from nine to five or whatever and then then it's time to then, get kicked out you know right so you know you tell people that we can stay in all through the night and into the next day where the biggest decision to be made is who's going to draw the straws to see who makes a biscuit and coffee run in the morning and um, sometimes we camp out even right underneath the we'll put in the air mattress and sleep people right sleep under the layout while it's running, you switch until you can't hold your <laughs> eyes open, and then we'll just roll you up on a ball, throw a blanket over you, and pick up your controller and take your train and your car cards and just keep getting it. And we do. <laughs> we do. And some people sleep, uh, they'll sleep uh, in sleeping bags outside the door or inside their trucks that are now empty. Uh, I've slept many a night in my bus. Uh, yeah, man, you, you you run trains till one o'clock in the morning until you can't see straight. Go out in the bus, get up at five o'clock in the morning, come in, and there's ten people running trains. <laughs> wow, <laughs> twenty-four it's hour great. day operation. Twenty-four hour day operation. It, it's amazing. It is amazing. And and uh, since we started doing that, in fact, Ken Anderson, I know this. That would be you. Is that the same? Yeah, that's you. Uh, he did, he was the first one to do that when Boone in Boone, Ken North Fest. Carolina. Kenfest, and that was how many years ago was that now? Uh, it's been better than ten years ago, I think. Oh hell yes! Uh, we stood up at a Baptist church gym- gymnasium. It was about seven thousand square feet. Seven thousand square feet, and we just barely could get the loud in there. We packed it in tight, and we had so much fun we couldn't believe it. 
So we said we we're just going to start doing fest because they're fun, and uh, we can invite people. We even if we ask for any charity or money for uh, for helping out pay some utilities, and sometimes if we got enough money, we'd donate it to charity. We've we've donated a lot of money to charity through the years. We went to a world's uh, a GAT show, Great American Train Show. That one was one came to Raleigh in 1991, late 91 or early 92 at the convention center downtown, and uh, we were a tiny lap in those days. We had just been together uh, less than a year, and our lap was huge. It was 16 by 24. Um, and I says, "Hey, you you want to? They're asking us to set up to go to this show." It's like, well, sure, we'll go. So we went down there, and there's probably 20 louts in there. And uh, and uh, at the end of the, at the end of Saturday, the guy who was running the show came up and said, "Well, you won second prize. Here's three hundred dollars." It's like, what? <laughs> what? There was money involved here. We didn't even know there was a contest. It's okay. Now we have a political problem. We have no mechanism for holding the money. We have no treasury. Uh, so, uh, so, uh, I can't remember who the cruise director was. Uh, I think it was Mark Gugliotta. So Mark said, okay, it seems by logic, we have to give the money to charity. And I said, okay, whoever the cruise director is gets to decide what the charity is. And we gave it to the Ronald McDonald house. And we never, we, you know, for the next 10 years, we gave every cent we earned in, in, uh, honorariums to, to the charities, uh, we still do Whoever sometimes. Whatever the cruise director's choice. Whatever the cruise the, director's uh, choice the, is. Yep. Now, sometimes the cruise director will take the money, and uh, let's say we got $700 the last time we went to Baltimore, and uh, the money was divided up amongst amongst us to who had to come the furthest because nobody came less than 300 miles. Some of us came 450 miles so the money was divided up, uh, uh, and it didn't cover the cost of fuel, but whoever had to pay the most for fuel got the most money. So the $700 disappeared and still didn't cover the fuel cost. And that's okay. We're not doing this for, for profit. If we were, this is exactly the wrong hobby to be in for that. Uh, we do it for the fun, and, and we're having a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, we've probably given ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000 away to charity and probably about that same amount to pay Exxon and Shell, but... You know, we're not making any money. We don't. We don't expect to. Don't expect to. Well, what? Okay, so you guys spend a uh, a lot of time. You go to different train shows, events, and so forth. When you're at home, is there a place where you guys can meet and set up modules and, like you said, just enjoy running trains and operating? Well, the short yes, answer is no. no, and the reason is is because we like you're talking to Ken and me right now. Ken and I are 300 miles apart as we're talking. The next closest person to me is 60 miles away in Goldsboro, and the next next nearest person is 95 miles away on the west side of Raleigh. That's how spread out we are. We're 350 miles east to west and 175 miles north to south, and that's just the guys in North Carolina. We've got three guys in Virginia, one in Roanoke, two in Portsmouth. We've got a guy in South Carolina near Myrtle Beach. We've got a guy in South Carolina near uh, just over the line from Augusta. Uh, We've got a guy in Clarksville, Tennessee. 
But even just the people in North Carolina were 350 miles apart. But we can set them up, and we have did little operations. We used to do it over Joe's basement. Matter of Back fact, when I lived in Boone. That right. Was many years we ago. even set them up and ran them out his driveway on a sunny day. And where his driveway broke away, they just blocked it up. You know, and of course, then the layout goes from 48 to probably almost 60 inches. But, yeah, it was 60 know. inches high at the end. Yeah. But uh, last you know, year, we've done we, that before. Last year in Goldsboro, on two different occasions, people came down from Raleigh to Rayburn's house, and we set up in his backyard. He's got a big backyard, and we set up like a 60 by 30 layout in his backyard. Um, and he fired up the grill, so it was way cool. We're walking around with a controller in the left hand, a hot dog in the right hand, running trains. It was so uh, uh, Someone throw that switch for me. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting mustard here. Right. So the only the only downside to that is is that uh, the weather has to be perfect. There, there there can be no no rain in the forecast, not a cloud in the sky, and the wind has to be under 20 miles an hour. But we did. We did it twice, and we we thought about doing it again. It, it, part of it was a demonstration for the people who jump up and down about, well, you have to level your layout. And uh, we're absolutely positively empirical proof that you don't. If you can set it up on a mowed grass lawn without leveling it, yeah, you don't have to level it anywhere. Uh, that's part of the secret of how fast we can set up. We don't level anything. We don't adjust anything. We don't have extra pieces for anything. Plug and play, move on. The only extra pieces that we have, Joe, and that right is the ones to to elevate the modules that need to be yeah, elevated. Yeah, the, the the ones that if you have an if you have a non elevated module between the ramps, then you have to elevate that. But other than that, there are no extra pieces. Right. And we don't always use them. We don't always use the inner because the ramps the ramps go up to the flyover modules and the flyovers are the over unders and they're already set at uh, 53 and a half. That's the way they were built. It's it's only modules past that that would have to be elevated, and, and we do that occasionally, but not often. Uh, we did it in Baltimore. We did it in Atlanta. I Shouldn't we, did, we discuss we to them also how we carry our modules too, Joe? Oh, Please. yeah. Oh, yeah. There, yeah um, well, you know, we've got some pretty sophisticated track and some killer, killer scenery. And as you know, anybody who's been into model routing very long, it's the scenery that's as, as delicate as, as bubbles in the desert. It, it, you can just look at it wrong and break. So we set these modules up, and it, the scenery is intact. People wonder how the hell we did that. Well, the system for carrying it uh, is simple but elegant. Most modules are built in pairs, and they are carried 18 inches apart face-to-face, and on the ends of the modules are carrier plates, and these carrier plates use this, they're drilled for the same peg holes that, that, uh, the same pins that align the modules. Yes. And these carriers attach on the ends using the same clamps that hold the modules together. Now, the carriers have two-and-a-half-inch swivel wheels wheels. on them so that you can push them. So two modules together push. Now, on top of that is a piece of Luan held down with bungee cord. The carriers are designed a little bit like the end of an ISO container, is that you can pick up a set of modules, two modules in their carriers, and set them on another set of modules in their carriers, 
and the spines on the back of the carriers carry all the weight. The modules don't actually touch each other. There's a one inch of airspace between them. And if you're tall enough and strong enough, you can stack these things three high. So we call them doubles or triple stacks. Right, and you can push them around on these two and a half inch rubber wheels. You know, if they're double stacked, you can push them double stacked. It doesn't matter. Okay, let me ask you then, when this is done, do you have any photos of the twin stacks and stuff that you could post on oh, our yeah. uh, podcast oh, page? Oh, yeah. The, the most famous photographs happen to be in Model Railroader April 09. It, it shows the, it shows the, the carriers, the, their construction. It's only four pieces of wood. It shows uh, carriers stacked up double high. It happened to be sitting at the end of my driveway when I used to live in Boone. I took the pictures, and Joe Joe wrote the article. Yeah, yeah, we did that. We did that in the summer and fall of 2008, and got published in April 2009 in Model Railroad. Yep. Now there are a bunch of pictures on the internet. We've got we've got a Facebook page somewhere. I, I don't do Facebook, but I know it's out there somewhere. And then there's a uh, a couple of different web pages, two or three different construction articles. Uh, there's a Yahoo group, and there's photographs in there. It's not a secret. I mean, it's not like we were trying to do this with the CIA or something. It, the stuff has been available for 25 years. We, we've gone out of our way to show the technology. And we asked, we asked no royalties, no payments. The only thing we have ever asked from anybody who uses this technology is just a credit line on where you got it from. So, yeah, we got this from sipping and switching in North Carolina. That's all we've ever asked. And uh, there's only a couple of other clubs that we know of that come anywhere close to this. There's, there's uh, the Cincy Boys. saw a group of young men who saw us in uh, the Nationals in 2005. And then there's a group of guys over in uh, Dayton, Ohio, known as the uh, Miami. Miami Valley Model Railroad Club, and they saw it, and they copied it, but they converted an existing layout. So their their waffles and their track standards and everything are identical to us, except that they stayed at 40 inches, where we're at 48. Other than that, they're the same. And that's, that's it. it. That's all there is. That's all there is. Us, us, the Cincy Boys and the Dayton Boys. That's all. We have an old uh, website, and you'll have to forgive me on this, but uh, I'll kind of give it to you. It's www.mindspring.com forward slash, and I always say the little squiggly line, Googliata, G-U-G-I-L-I-O-T-T-A. I think I spelled that right, forward slash index dot HTML. And that's an old website that our buddy uh, Mark Gugliotta created. It's kind of some old photographs. At least it gives you an idea of our, you know, our base of our, our of our group and, and how it was started. You know, and it kind of gives you an idea about the, the group. Plus, you can find us on Yahoo, which uh, we're slowly going over to uh, uh, Groups.io and, of course, Facebook. Uh, plus, you can just Google sipping and switching, and 80% of the hits will be us, and the other 20% will be the Cincy Boys, who we have set up with. We've set up with them twice in Atlanta, once in Baltimore, and once in Cleveland. So, yeah, their stuff's compatible with ours. Plus, we also have a – we have a uh, – I built a, a, a little connector module, if you want to call it a module, that will connect to Fremo. And we've done that, too. We did that in Detroit in uh, 07, and we did that in one of our Baltimore shows in 11. 
where we can we can put this uh, one inch thick plate which is known as moss and it covers our pins and sets us back the one inch that Fremo requires and we have a series of uh, of blocks that we can raise our layout a half inch per eight foot to get the extra two inches in, which is what we did both in, in Baltimore and in Detroit. Uh, so we're kind of compatible with Fremo from that standpoint. Yeah, your your, your track height is 48, and that's, that's not too far from Fremo being 50, so. Yeah, yeah. When we did that in Detroit in 2007, the grade was only a half percent. We were only coming up a half inch per eight feet. Most people didn't even notice it was a grade. Yeah. The the people who knew us thought Fremo was 48, and the people who knew Fremo thought we were 50. <laughs> there's there's been was- a few layouts that I've been in where it, it's been inside of a barn, and there's like a two-inch draft to the top of the floor. Mm-hmm. And you, you know it becomes fifty four inches on one end of the layout and about forty eight on the other. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know we've we've been in some strange places. We were in uh, we were in this uh, horse barn fairground thing in uh, Valley Forge, whatever that building was supposed to be, and there was a dip in the floor, and we didn't notice. And we hooked up these modules and tightened up the C-clamp and ran on it for two and a half days. And we started tearing it down. We had spanned a gap more than 18 feet long where none of the wheels were touching the floor. And didn't even notice until we, you know, loosened the clamps <laughs> up and the whole thing dropped down an inch and a half. It's like, well, damn, look at that. Like I say, at any given time, 30, 40% of our wheels are not touching the floor. They just, we don't have to. They don't have to. Plus, well, with the, the wheels... Is- Say with the wheels, we can move ten modules at a crack with one person. We do it all the time. But Plus, it is—it's the to... system. And, yeah, and I guess system. Joe's kind of said that it's the system. It's—it's it's a package deal. We've had guys that come to the shows and they'll say, you know, we'd like to take a little bit of this, and you know, take it. It's almost like a you know doing a deli, you know, or you know, it's a smorgasbord. Let's let's take a little piece of this and piece of that, and we're going to combine that to our modules. It's like no, no, this is a package deal. The light, light Luan and the and the template and the and the you can't go away from using the uh, the banquet steel banquet table legs and the casters. It, it's just it's a package deal. You just can't you know take a little bit of it. It's this is the way this this system is works. So we don't really try to sell the the idea anymore, but we also try to say this is what works for us. You know we're not going to tell you that you know this is the way you have to do it, but you can't really take bits and pieces of it and try to incorporate it in your uh, into your your layout. But what happens what happens is that without realizing it, you build in stresses that become enormous. The the waffle the lightweight waffle box is the secret sauce. That's what makes it all work. That's the backbone. Because when you calculate what the stresses are on the ends of a module, let's say you've got a hundred foot long straightaway and you want to push the one end over two feet to line it up. That's a 100-foot-long lever that two fat boys are going to push, and the stress is going to be on that. The stress is going to be on the first or second joints, and it's going to be a tensile moment that's going to be in the 10 or 20,000 foot-pounds worth of, of tension there. And that's why you will occasionally see modules with the ends ripped out. Uh, see, and we know that because you know in the old days, the groups that we were uh, part of in those days yeah I used to 
see and drip that all the time. And it's like, okay, I'll just do a quick calculation. Holy mackerel, there's a lot of zeros in that number. So, so the, the torque tube will withstand an enormous amount of pressure and, and tensile stress. Uh, where a regular, a regular uh, module made out of 1x4s or 1x6s that's got three or four screws in the corner and a half-inch plywood nailed on top, those modules won't stand that. They absolutely will not stand that kind of stress. And when you're talking about the bulk of your wheels not even touching the ground, yeah, there's some stresses here, and they're big. We used so to move you, the layout, and the layout, we'd have to try to de-stress some of the legs. Whether the legs were wooden or some of the legs were steel, we'd have to go around tapping like that to try to, uh, to, to, try to jimmy and shimmy the, the modules to make the final connection. And so when we ended up going wheels, oh, steel man. Steel legs and it, wheels, it, it, was, it changed everything. It yep, changed everything. Yep, it sure uh, did. At one time, we had five different competing designs for wooden legs, and then one guy shows up with steel legs, like, oh, this game is over. And then, and then at a later date, probably four years later, uh, the wheels happened almost by accident, a, a different project, and in, in, uh, working on that big bridge for the, the, the 16-foot-long bridge for uh, His Holiness Curtis Pope. Yeah. Uh, it's like, holy mackerel. We can roll these things around on wheels. So we showed up in Baltimore, I think it was around 2003, and I had already converted most of my big modules to wheels. And the guys, the guys show up, and it's like, so what's with this wheel stuff? I said, what's what I can do? And it's like, well, dude, next show, mine will all be on wheels too, and we never look back. So after all of the modules got on wheels, it was kind of like, how in the hell did we even do this without wheels before? How did we even do it? So now what we'll do is we'll slap together four eight-footers in a row or more, wait for their time to come into the layout, and one guy will just give it a bump and push it around like a giant long gurney uh, and just roll it into place. Bang, there it is. It, it's, it's astonishing. Uh, but we've gotten used to it. We only get reminded every now and again when somebody comes down to look at it. And Well, like in, in, uh, in November, uh, my friend Tim Moran, I met – Tim Moran is Mr. Fremo east of the Missouri River. Wonderful fellow, and he's got his fingers in the Fremo everywhere. And, and he was connected up – the Fremo was connected up to us in Detroit in 07, but we set up on Wednesday afternoon, and Fremo didn't set up until Thursday morning. They never saw us set up, and they didn't see us tear down either. Uh, so, so yeah, he saw us in Cleveland. He saw us in Milwaukee. You know, he saw us in several places. Okay, great. So he says, you know, our show in Syracuse was canceled, so I'm going to come down and see you guys. I says, fine, come on down. I said, but you're going to be highly disappointed. He says, why? He says, like, because we're going to be sitting around drinking cheer wine and sun dropping, eating donuts and pointing at each other and laughing, and then somebody will drive a truck in, and we'll jump on it like vultures, and 10 minutes, the truck's empty, and half the modules are set up, and we're already assembling them, and then it's done, and then we'll sit around and eat donuts and point and laugh at each other until the next truck shows up, which we did. So he's sitting there, and he's taking pictures, and uh, we're just casually, okay, let's roll that baby in there. So I, I grabbed a line of modules that was 64 feet long, and it had been assembled simply because they were all sitting there. And we weren't really sure exactly where they were going to go into the layout. It turns out that we had to rotate them 180 degrees. So I just walked over there, grabbed one in, and walked in a big arc and turned them 180 degrees by myself. 
and he almost he almost had an epileptic fit. He says, I can't even believe that. I'm like, believe what? What you just did? What? What? And I was like, we do this every show. <laughs> yeah, okay. There's no magic here. They're on wheels, did you notice? Uh yeah, that's part of it. That's part of how we can do these things. You want to move that whole sectional out? Okay, fine. Three guys can push 400 feet worth of modules in one shot, and we did that too. No problem. No fuss. No muss. Line it up. Clamp it together. Move on. You're done. Uh, it is. It really is that fast. It really, really is. But that's not to say this all fell out of the sky in one chunk. I mean, there was an awful lot of trial and error, and there was a lot of error. Um, we There's been a lot of putting, evolving, right, Joe? Yeah, well, the early days evolved. Years. Yeah, there was, you know, Australopithecus, you know, the men who invented tools. Either that or they found the first Craftsman catalog. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, we, we evolved rapidly because of failure. You know, the old saying is the only people not making mistakes are the people not doing anything. And we started putting dates on our modules. There are half-inch white letters on the upper right-hand corner, usually on the outside of the module, because we were losing track on when these things were built. I mean, some of these, you know, Peanut's 42 years old. And so, okay, we got dates on them. So, yeah, we got some from the 70s, and we got some from the early 90s. And somebody said one day, says, we don't seem to have any from the 80s. And says, well, that's pretty clever. You notice that. We have 88 feet of them not from the 80s. What do you mean? It says, well, you know these little extra pieces and the good glue and to make sure it's clamped straight? Yeah, you really need to do it that way because there's 88 feet of this stuff that went up my chimney. <laughs> and it makes good kindling, too. It really does. <laughs> there, there have been some others who, who uh, have said, yeah, you can't take shortcuts on this. You're building a machine. It just doesn't look like it's made out of wood. But if, if you don't put the if you don't build it correctly and you get 20,000 pounds of torsion on one end, yep, you'll rip the end out, no problem, no problem. So after you rip the ends out of a couple, I said, yeah, we really need to stay on the program with building them full strength, and so we don't do that. Okay, let me ask a question about what I saw at Charlotte were a couple of the corners that were 24-foot radius. Yeah, there was a 90-foot, 4-foot. Uh, 90 foot four piece that's a 24 foot radius and then on the opposite side of the lap was a 16 foot radius in three pieces okay so they're done in some manageable length yeah the the modules on the three piece set are about nine feet six inches long and the modules on the uh on the 24 foot set is four pieces about eight foot nine inches long tip to tip and they're carried in pairs. The odd one is paired up with another module. It happens to be a straight. But, yeah, they're all paired together. And ah, they stack. Very impressive visually when you watch, especially if you're passenger cars or uh, F-89, something like that. Or going. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, it just looks uh, so incredible. Well, on the 24-foot on the curve, as I recall, uh, that's a 282 and 284-inch radius curve. Yeah, it's actually a it's actually a two and a half degree curve on the prototype. Hey, it, we built it for the wow factor. Those happen to be mine, by the way. I, I built the sixteen and the twenty four foot curves. They're mine. Oh yeah. We also yeah. have inside curves too. 
right well, inside curves. We've got uh, four, six, eight, and twelve foot inside curves as well, which is you know how you get U shapes. And we've got an inventory of all this stuff. We have outside eights, outside one eighties, uh, outside sixes. We have some outside fours, but we don't use them on the main line. We never really did. Those are branch line only modules because those are uh, an outside four is thirty two and thirty four and a half inch radius, and that's just too sharp for our main lines. We just don't. The outside sixes are 62, 64 inch radius curves, and that's about the minimum radius that we run on the main line. And if we don't, if we if we can get away without using six foot outsides on the main, we'll do it. And then and then our minimum radius is uh, 86, 88. So some of yeah. the guys also <laughs> will uh, will do prototype scenes. And some are fictitious, more fictitious, but there's a lot of guys will try to incorporate. One of our guys is trying to model uh, downtown there uh, at NC State, uh, where the tracks of the uh, NNS uh, go right through uh, uh, the uh, university down there. And I also have a couple of modules that uh, have uh, tried to uh, duplicate a uh, narrow gauge scene over here in uh, Tennessee. Elizabethan, as as it appeared in 1948, it, it's it's pretty remarkable too. You look at the photograph he's working from, and there's this big oak tree that overhangs Main Street, <laughs> and even the limbs on the tree match the picture. Yeah. Ken is just not right. He's this. Oh, I know that boy. <laughs> <laughs> and we got the modules to prove it. Yeah, yeah, we're nuts, and we have the modules to prove it. Um, we have we have developed some some sayings along the way, you know. Uh, it's like, so why do you do it that way? Shut up, we're having fun. Damn it! <laughs> <laughs> we always uh, say, it, what are what is it about grown men playing with bits and pieces of wood played, and plastic and all and metal? You know. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to understand. You know what's what mental deformity it takes to enjoy this hobby, but we love it so much. I, I can't even explain why, but we do. And the friendships do? that we have acquired through the years and, and the stories that we can do, it's, it's just, it's, you just can't, you can't, uh, it just can't be, you just can't buy that kind of, that kind of, I get more out of that sometimes than I just do the hobby. And also sharing the, the hobby is, is, has become a passion too, I think. Yeah, we'll never give up all the train shows because you need to see a few thousand people walk by the lot once in a while just to let them know that there's alternative ways of doing this. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> I tell you, we used to have we used to have our most fun at the national train shows. Uh, the uh, typically the NMRA would limit us to six thousand square feet, so we would we would pick the good stuff and and uh, set it up and. You know, a typical NMRA show is going to pump uh, fifteen, eighteen thousand 18,000 people through there in two and a half days. But but the other train people, like at Detroit, there were 66 layouts set up in that hall at the Cobo Center. And uh, they will come up and they will say things like, well, you can't do it like this. And I'm like, do it like what? Well, you got to have adjusters. Is that so? I'm sorry, we didn't get that memo. Uh, and you're not connecting your track. you got to have rail drawers in that track. And it's like, Why? 
Well, to hold them in alignment, no. We we hold them in alignment another way, and you know, and in and in running Code 40 track, we've probably got 500 linear feet of Code 40 standard gauge track on that layout, and uh, I know because I hand laid every bit of it myself, and and <laughs> and people will say you can't run on Code 40, really? Did you not see that train go by? What part of this do you not understand? <laughs> uh, and I said, well, how do you connect it up to that Code 100? There are places where Code 40 connects to Code 100 across the frontier. Trains can't tell. We don't care. You That's had the- one guy <laughs> ask you, he said you had uh, the special wheels? Yeah, did we use that? the special <laughs> wheels for that Code 40? And I, this, ha- this happened, that happened to a, it was, uh, it was a Vesti and a bulletproof Vesti from the NMRA, and that was in, uh, uh, that was in Cincy in 05, and the guy says, well, you must be using those special wheels. And I says, yeah, we use the round ones because the square ones get kind of lumpy at slow speeds. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they don't see the humor all the time, you know. No, so. no. Yeah, I bet they don't. Yeah. And we, and we have the humor about us because that's sometimes how we can just deal with some of this. And also, it's how we enlighten each other, too, you know. Yeah, the, the friendships are truly important, uh, and and we have evolved a kind of strange relationship with the hobby. We're we're a bunch of guys, and maybe there are too many A personalities. It's hard to say, but but we look at model railroading as a slightly competitive hobby. Yes, you see somebody do something, and it's like you know. I can do that, and I can do that better. <laughs> and and we we do we we push each other. We we truly do. We push yep. each other. I agree. Uh, and uh, I I wouldn't I I've probably got three lifetimes worth of experience just hanging out with these guys, and I like them anyhow. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's just amazing what we've done, and I'm so proud of it. And. Uh, uh, I, I can't explain why it's so much fun. I just, I just can't explain it. I just, I'm taking it day at a time and having a great time. Grown men playing with bits of plastic, metal, and wood. I just, I just love it. <laughs> Matter of fact, I, Paul, I, I met uh, Joe twenty, probably almost twenty-five years ago, I guess now, isn't it, Joe? Yeah, yeah. And and it just so happens I was hanging out with a, a bunch of guys that were wanting to start up a modular group, and they weren't sure if they wanted to do an MRA spec. They didn't really know what they wanted to do, and uh, our other buddy, Mark Gugliotta, he came up visiting Joe since uh, his wife uh, taught, or excuse me, she was at the library at Appalachian State University uh, here in Boone, North Carolina, and Joe's, you know, he was going, toggling back and forth, driving back and forth from Raleigh to to Boone on, on weekends sometimes, and so Mark comes up and he says, hey, I hear that they've got a... Uh, a bunch of guys down here at this uh, Lutheran church meeting in the basement, and they're talking about doing railroading. He says, how about we take some of the modules down there? Joe's like, yeah, you know, I don't know if I really want to do it. But, yeah, sure, why not? So they brought it down there, and the rest of us, including myself, is like, wow, this is the cat's meow. This is great stuff, you know? And that was some of the, I don't couldn't even tell you, second generation of the modules, I don't know, but that was peanut, right? That, that was peanut. We had to, and it was we a had to stand it up on edge, get it down the, We had to stand peanut up, up on edge, get it down the stairwell into the basement where the train meeting was. That was pretty funny, too. Uh, <laughs> and, <yeah. laughs> 
and that I met Ken. I, I met uh, I met four or five Rick, other people there. Rick, Rick Matar was yeah. there. Uh, Blackstone was there. Klaus Shira was there. It was. But amazing. It's been pretty much you, uh, myself and and Rick and all like that really latched on, and we we really uh, stuck with it, and we've been buddies ever since. Even if we're you know, you know, five hours apart from each other, we've still you know talked other on a normal basis see each other at the train show and and have kept that up in our camaraderie and phone calls and online and all like that so yeah online and long distance free long distance is how we've stayed together because like like i said i'm 300 miles east of boone i lived in boone for 18 years but i'm down here in granville almost 10 now this this august i'll be here 10 years and sometimes the train shows and the and the op sessions the fest is the only time a lot of us uh, get to eat and see each other and then, yeah. uh, and kind of do our little reunion uh, at each show, you know? Yeah, yeah. We got a couple of guys in Charlotte. Uh, I only see them. I only see my friends at train shows. It's the only time we ever get together. It's the only time the layout actually exists is at the, the train show. Because, you know, we'll break down and the layout will go in five different directions on the compass and disappear. It just vanishes. Yeah. Which is, yeah. to me, is just even another reason that this thing is so outstanding, the way that it executes, because of what you just said, the physical distance between all of you guys. Well, when they come together, Paul, we expect it to work. It has to yeah. work. Yeah, it has time. to work. It has to work. You know, we don't have the, the, the resources to rebuild this crap at a show. At a show, you plug it right. and you run it. If it's broke, you don't use it. And if it doesn't line up, it's broke. And we've yeah. had that happen before. Yeah. Oh, really? What? Oh, well, yeah. They, they're somebody very run them. They find that out. Yeah. Somebody run a module into a steel doorpost or something, and not. Oh, noticed, somebody but... didn't. Didn't somebody didn't? They thought, oh, well, that's close enough to the template. Oh <laughs> no! Oh man! No. Oh, we'll not name names to protect the innocent. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, um, when That's you tell, close enough. Yeah. When you tell somebody who is a classic woodworker that you're holding a tolerance of plus or minus five thousandths, they don't even know what you're talking about. That's machinist territory. And yep. I've had people actually, you know, pull out a tape measure and say, between what two marks is five thousandths? I said, dude, the marks are fifteen thousandths <laughs> wide. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You need a narrower pencil. So how in the hell are you measuring this out? You can't. Human beings cannot do that. That's why the template, the proper use of the template is everything. And he said, well, where do I get a template? Well, the specs are published, and uh, you know, get a machine shop to give you a quote. Our quotes have been running between $100 and $120 a piece. If you buy 10, you can get them for $50 a piece. So well, that's an awful lot of money. Well, thank you for playing. Next. Um <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, I can't spend that kind of money. Oh, you the one with the three thousand dollar brass engine and the three hundred dollar a piece brass passenger cars, and you can't afford a hundred dollar template to fit into this system. Uh, really sucks to be you. Next, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's amazing. It is amazing. Uh, and, and a lot of our success too has been because we're refugees from other model railroad clubs or other clubs in general. And there is a whole subsection of sociology on dealing with clubs. 
And the typical club has three kinds of people in it. It has the political people, which account for about 15%. And then you have the worker bees, which account for about 15%. And you have the enablers, which is everybody in the middle. And the, yep. the dynamic of that is, is the enablers vote for the political people, and the political people tell the worker bees what to do, not necessarily to please the worker bees, but to please everybody else who have already said they're not going to lift a finger to help. So the worker bees disappear. They vote with their feet, and now you have to, you have to replace the worker bees at something near the rate in which they leave, which is why so many model railroad clubs are – clubs in general for that matter, have an evangelical recruitment division because they're constantly trying to replace their casualty rate. So we get together 27 years ago and say we're just going to do away with everybody except the worker bees. So we'll show up to a national show with five people and put up a 6,000-foot layout in an hour and 10 minutes. They were surprised, very surprised. And the first question we get, how many people in your club? Well, we don't even have a club. How many people set this up? Five. No, really, really. No, five. five. But you see, if you assume that worker bees are 15%, we represent a 40-45 person club. We just don't have the rest of it. Clubs tend to go that way. I mean, it could be a beer can collecting club or a butterfly wing collecting club. It doesn't matter. They all go the same route. We're just doing it without the politicals and the enablers. We're just the worker bees. It's just us. Yeah. And and through the last 27 years, we have uh, we have a, a spiel, a routine. It's somebody standing in front of the layout, and if it's a big layout, there may be two or three people, and we call it selling aluminum siding where we'll stand there and we'll answer the questions and this and that and the other, and somebody will say this, well, what about this, what about that? So, okay, fine. So in all of this talking, it has evolved that we basically have four organic rules. Three of them are organizational rules, and one of them is a membership rule. And it works like this. Rule one, no voting. Rule two, no common property. Rule three, anybody who suggests we organize to a higher level is immediately ejected. Ejected. And, and, and our membership, our membership rule is self-evident and self-enforcing. If you hang with us and do what we do, Dude, you're probably, probably a member. If there's any doubt any in doubt your, your mind at all, you're probably not. <laughs> and that's it. That's it. Uh, and and you can tell somebody who hasn't internalized this because they'll say, "What we need is stop. We don't need anything. We've got everything we could ever possibly use. You build what you need." But we don't need anything because you're going to pay for it, and you're going to move it, and you're going to store it, and you're going to going to uh, uh, transport it and maintain it. That's all you, dude. It's all you. Well, what modules do the club own? Nothing. Nothing. Okay. Every inch of wire, every foot of track, every square inch. There is nothing common property. Nothing. We don't even have a treasury. We have How no many modules do you property. own, Joe? Thirty-one. He owns 31, and, and little bits and pieces I own, I own 24. Well, he, probably, he can get all his and maybe a couple of pieces not in his bus. Mine, I could probably get them in a uh, 6 by 12. Yeah, the limit, the limit of the number of modules I have, now I've built about 65 in the last 25 years and gave them away. Uh, uh, the limit on the number of modules I have is how many fit in the bus, the end. <laughs> if it was a bigger bus, I'd have more <laughs> modules. <laughs> 
<laughs> Learn like Jaws, you know. Right? We, <laughs> we need a bigger boat. <laughs> we need a bigger boat, yeah. He's talked about lifting stretcher. the roof on his bus. He's yeah, if about... I can lift the roof three feet, I can get 40% more modules in there. <laughs> uh, get out the sawzall you know? <laughs> yeah. well yeah and i'm also a welder i can do that i mean it's not beyond the realm of possibility i, I can weld uh and and there's another there's another website i go to occasionally called schoolies on how to modify school buses and you wouldn't believe what some of those boys do um <laughs> so there's a guy who's got a bus exactly like mine uh 40 foot flat front and he jacked the roof up three feet and i says you know what that's not even complicated. I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> I could do that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're nuts, and we have the trains to prove it. It, it has been a wonderful. It has been a wonderful journey. It has yep, been really a wonderful journey. Wouldn't it trade hardly a minute. And I've never been to a bad train show. Some are just better than others. Yep. Never <laughs> been to a bad one. And we've been. It's like pizza. In the, yeah, yeah, in the last 27 yeah. years, we've been to uh, 35 or 36 cities in 11 states and had to drive through two other states to get there. Yeah, you and I have been we to, set, to, yep, a we, lot of them we together. We set up in uh, Michigan and Ohio and Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Tennessee, uh, North Carolina, Maryland. Yeah, we did Baltimore, Maryland, uh, South Carolina, and Georgia and had to drive through Kentucky and Delaware. We've never done a show in Kentucky or Delaware. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, I went to the, – the Cincy boys actually went to Wisconsin without us, to Milwaukee, and I was there. Uh, but I, that was a bridge too far for us. That was too far to drive a bus at 51 miles an hour. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> but I we've thought asked, about We've it. been even asked to go to, uh, to uh, Amherst, and it's like, do you realize how far that is for us to go? You know, it's not just, it's not, it may not always be the treasury, you know, to get there. It, the biggest issue, a lot of it is, is the time. And, and uh, it just, you know, you gotta, you gotta put a limit to some of this, you know? Yeah, we were up in Amherst. I was up in Amherst. Uh, some of our guys went up there two years ago, and I'm going to be there next year in 19. I'll be there. Hell or high water, I'll be there. I guess you'll be there too, Chris, won't you? You bet. Yep. I'll be there. there uh, too. Yeah, that's a show and a And I'd love to. I'd love to be up there, but uh, I didn't. I didn't see an extra fifteen thousand feet laying around. Did you? No. No. That would be. That would be hard. First, you know, if you know, if we could, if we could get a commitment for fifteen thousand square feet, geez, Louise, I'd hate to, but I'd probably have to go. Uh, <laughs> Parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, show show another 20,000 people that you really don't have to have adjusters and wheels do work. You know, if I was a young man, I think this wheel thing's going to take off. I'd, inve- I'd invest in wheels. I would. Um, a, biggest, a lot of our biggest problem is now is that now we're scenery deprived, you know? Yeah, we, we had a growth spurt there a few years ago. We got a lot of, got a lot of plywood we got to cover up with scenery, which we're doing. Well, we're covering up a lot of scenery, you know, a lot of plywood scenery, but uh, and some people would, some people occasionally would come up and say, like, well, you know, you've got a lot of unfinished modules in there. And I says, yep, that is true. However, we've got the most scenic modules you've ever seen. We just have unfinished modules between them. But we've got more scenery than any other single entity modular railroad has ever had. And that's true. 
That's yeah, true. Um, but you know, there's only it's only you know eight or ten or twelve of us doing it, but we're getting there. We're getting there. <laughs> yeah. It all takes time. <laughs> yeah. Well, well who built the big passenger station? That would be Bill uh, Swint, Charlotte. Bill Swint. Oh, that was Bill Swint. That's the B&O. That's the B&O passenger station in Chicago, as it that appeared was, before 1967. That was his modules, but Mark Gugliotta built the station. Yeah, that's that's a pretty good representation. In fact, the the clock towers, the clocks actually work, and we've noticed people actually notice that in the past. Somebody walk up and say, "Well, your your clocks are an hour slow." No, Chicago was on Central Time. <laughs> uh, but it amazes no. us the number of people. It's the number of people uh, that re- that actually recognize the station. You know, a station that was torn down in 1968, and people still walk by. So, well, that's to be a Chicago station. That's to me, that's remarkable that they'd recognize a station that's gone now what 45 years. Yeah, uh, mm. that's amazing. That is amazing. You know, it. Sometimes I think that that modular railroading, as opposed to model railroading, modular railroading is a lot like baseball. A lot of it is repetition and routine. But every now and again, something will happen that you've never seen before. Uh, and, and you know, like an unassisted triple play from second base or something like that, which, by the way, is the rarest play in baseball. It's only happened twice since 1900. Um, and, and modular railroading, it shows, is that way. Every now and again, something will happen. It's like, well, son of a gun, look at that. Or somebody will say something. That it's just out of the blue. Yeah. Oh yeah, I know. I know this. Uh, I know this thing right here. Yeah, I grew up not far from this, and they'll be pointing at some shack on the side of the track that was just generic. But they'll swear to you that you know that was some place in Alabama, 1946. Yeah. Okay. We'll go with I've that. I've got a lady um, do that to mine. Yep. Swear it. Yeah, Somewhere and we we never contradict them. We never yep. contradict them. It's our <laughs> policy. If they if they recognize it as whatever it is they recognize it, we agree okay. with them. Yep. We always agree with them. Yes, ma'am, that is exactly what that is. <laughs> <laughs> the smile and nod, yes. There you yeah. go. And you meet a lot of nice people. I have oh, yeah. a, I have a, a gas station, a 1920s gas station on one of my modules, and it's supposed to be an uh uh, a Texaco station, and it's a little tiny pewter uh, building, and it's got it's the correct. It's a little Woodland Phoenix, I think, isn't it? It's a, right. It's an old Woodland Phoenix pewter kit, and it's been sitting on that module for almost thirty years, and it's supposed to have uh, red windows because they had standard paint schemes for those little tiny shack gas stations. Well, I ran out of red paint, so I painted it so blue. Because I had blue paint. And an old guy on a cane walked up. He said, son, you painted those windows the wrong color. And I was astonished that somebody else would even know that detail. Who knows what 1920 gas stations look like? But this guy knew that. Yeah. <laughs> I said, yes, sir, I know they're <laughs> supposed to be red, but I ran out of red paint, so I had the blue. That's why I said, well, you need to go back and repaint that, son. Okay, I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> It has gas 12 cents on a sign in front of it. 
No kidding. Uh, yeah. All right. You know, I, it's got the correct 1923 uh, 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 Mack Bulldog fuel truck sitting behind it, too. I mean, yeah. we actually know what they're supposed to look like, which gives us license to do it wrong because we know we did it wrong. It's uh, uh, somebody who doesn't know the difference and does it wrong. That's that's different. So we'll say, yep, you're right. That should have been red paint on that. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the trivia mania that can strike. Uh, Ken Ken's got a 16 foot scene, Elizabethan, aka Liz one, Liz two, two eight footers, and he's got a Burma shave uh, uh, sequence on the front edge. H O Burma shave signs. There actually was a company that sold those things many years ago. And people will walk up and say, I remember Burma Shave signs. Yeah. I'm 65 years old, and that's before my time. And my time, where, it's even more. Where in the hell did these people remember Burma Shave signs from? Yeah. From going uh, on vacation claim, or driving through the country, that's how. I guess. Uh, Burma Shave signs were all over the place in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, particularly the 30s, but they lasted into the 40s. And I've seen I've seen newsreels with them, and I've seen advertisements with them, but I've never actually seen one in person. Uh, do you remember the old Chew Mail Pouch uh, uh, Barnes? I've I've I caught the tail end of that as a young man. I remember an occasional dilapidated old Chew Mail Patch Barn, but I never saw one freshly painted. Uh, it's, it's the trivia like that. That uh, uh, do you remember yellow stop signs? Are you old enough to remember that? Uh, yeah, they lasted until 1958, so. although officially they lasted until 1958. But there was a place in my hometown of Pennsylvania, Indiana, Pennsylvania, where there was a yellow stop sign as late as 1996. Really? Oh, wow. They just, they wow. just never got around to replacing it. It was on a one-lane dirt road into a back alley. It's like, okay, it's a stop sign. Everybody knows to stop there. And, you know, why well, pay $100 to send a crew down there to change it to red? It works just fine right. yellow. And it would still be yellow if some drunk hadn't run it down and smashed it up, and they replaced it with a red one. <laughs> mm. uh, I felt very sad about that. <laughs> <laughs> Trivia mania. Like, yes, like yeah. when, you know, running boards disappeared, and arch bar trucks disappeared, and Bettendorf T-sections disappeared, and Andrews trucks disappeared, and... Most people have no clue when the you know the equipment acts change. You know when ribback cast iron wheels were outlawed and plain bearings. Uh, yeah, plain bearings coming. gave way to roller bearings. Yeah, we yeah. actually even have module theory. Um, oh yeah, it's a module we, theory on how modules should be built. There's um, specs on, on modules, class ones, class twos. Uh, well, you know? the, the the class system is uh has to do with curves in our system 80 inch radius and up is a class a uh 54 inch up is a class b uh 30 34 up is a c 24 up is a d and anything sharper than that is unclassified and i was using that system in my head designing layouts for years and didn't tell anybody because you know i didn't think anybody else cared um, and then one day I'm, I'm standing there, we're building a layout. I says, I, you know, it was an ad hoc layout. And I says, I need a class C curve right here. And I'm like, what? What? Oh, yeah. Uh, I really should have explained it before, huh? The other thing about module theory is the type of module you build. You have, you have a distance module, 
which is, in our case, is three and out. There's nothing on it. All you're doing is you're putting some distance in the line someplace. And then you have what we call as a facilitating module, a module that has a job, for instance, a junction or a crossing. And we've got junctions that turn to the inside, junctions that turn to the outside, and junctions that do both with a diamond that crosses over. Uh, those are facilitating modules, and two-footers and four-footers are facilitating modules in our system because they're only used occasionally to fill in the gaps that, that the geometry is dictated. Uh, and then you, we had home modules, which we don't use anymore, but you had a home module where you, typically it was your yard and your power supply. So when you designed a layout, you had to space the home modules out, and you had to put distance modules in, and then your your curved modules based on their letter class, and then facilitating modules to connect them all up. You know, basic module theory. Um, a lot of this stuff is more cerebral than it needs to be, and most people yeah. never get to that level. Most no. people build modules. Well, you got four foot curves and four foot straights. That's it. That's all we got, and that's fine. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But when you're building a, a 10, 12, 14, 16,000 foot layout, that's not going to hold up. You're going to have to have a little bit more theory behind it, or the pieces aren't going to come together quite right. And a lot of our guys are now having the modules in their computers, and they uh, they just go in there and they can design the layouts by the the uh, sections that are now, uh, and, and also not the, the shape of the module, but also the the track configuration, which has seemed to it works. Joe does them still in the old school in the graph paper. Uh, yeah, I'm graph know, paper pencil. and pencil myself. <laughs> Uh, the three guys that design the big layouts, they share a common program, and they can email their updates between them. And uh, post them I'm, on I'm, the Internet. Yeah, and then post them on the Internet. I'm the oddball. When I design a layout, I'll draw it out large scale, quarter inch to the foot, and then I'll roll it up and I'll mail it to Mark and Raleigh, and he'll digitize it and post it. I, I don't have the ability to post my own plans. Well, that's Okay. The funny thing is, I can draw I can draw a fifteen thousand foot layout damn near as fast with a pencil as they can with a, with a program. I find that pretty funny. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I'm not. They say, "Well, you need to buy this program." So I'm not going to spend a hundred hours learning how to run this damn program because as soon as I buy it, it will be the last issue, and they'll have a new issue. I'll have to relearn it again. I'm tired of doing that. So no, I, I, I prefer. <laughs> A lap board and graph paper and a pencil, and I'm happy as a clam in mud. Go with that. Uh, <laughs> uh, it works. It works. So are there any other uh, areas that we haven't covered that, that you specifically wanted to ask about? No, I think we have uh, covered all the questions that I had based upon seeing uh, your railroad assembled in Charlotte, and then the subsequent uh, conversations that we've had and emails. No, I mean, if you're able to post, you know, as I mentioned, some photos of the waffles and some of the unique features that we've discussed here, I think it'll be a, you know, real asset to the, the listener well, who can the, go and the, see it. The, the uh, April 09 model railroader is the original uh, construction article. Unfortunately, they edited it to pieces. Uh, the photographs are fine, but the, the, the copy is horrible. Um, there are other construction articles. Uh, Ken and I did another one 
that's on one of our maybe multiple websites, and uh, there's photographs of all this there as well. We uh, probably the, provide that information. Yeah, there's hundreds of photographs all over the place. They're just I just can't put my finger on the addresses right now. Yeah. Uh, like I say, go to Google and go sipping and switching of NC, and and all kinds of stuff will turn up. And try not okay. to get sucked into. Try not to get sucked into those videos of the camera going down the track because that'll mesmerize you. Yeah, <laughs> you can spend hours looking at those things. And those were GoPro videos at different shows. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Every show for the last eight years is covered with at least two. One of the other shows, one of the guys did a uh, uh, did a sped up version of uh, Breakdown. Oh yeah, the that last. No kidding. Last year, yeah, last year cool. in Goldsboro, uh, they set up a time lapse camera on the on the walk around track around the three basketball courts, and uh, we have absolutely positively documented evidence that a fourteen thousand square foot lot was broken down and removed in one hour and thirty nine minutes to lights out. Okay. And it's there's two versions. There's a there's a, a about a forty second version and about a three and a half minute version. The 40-second version is actually better uh, uh, because stop action is so quick it almost looks like it's moving. Yeah. The, the, the slower version is so slow it's like, oh, yawn. Uh, okay, and where's that video available at? Oh, um, you ask hard questions. It would probably uh, could be on Facebook. I, I'm not sure exactly. Um, uh, it's either in the Yahoo list or it's on Facebook. It's one or the other. It's I could probably find it, you know. And provide that for you, you know. There's, there's so many videos of us on on the internet. I mean, there were several videos that were taken when we set up in in Cincinnati, and there were several more taken when we set up the mega show in Baltimore. And we don't know who these people are. These are people that took videos of the layout and walk around tours and all this and all that. We don't even know who these people are. In fact, the one guy, according to his handle, lives in Hawaii, or at least he wants to. Maybe he wants to. Probably lives in Idaho. Wants to live in Hawaii. Um, uh, and he took some great, great shots. And uh, we don't even know who these people are. I guess we've not okay. done a lot of documentation of the setup and breakdown. And we've did, there's been several. I've even done some. Uh, casual uh, uh, construction videos and post them on YouTube. Um, but a lot of us are really not, you know, into that. That's almost a way I always said, and I think even Joe would agree that uh, that's almost a hobby in itself is setting up and recording, you know, um, you know, your, your, your work, uh, building modules and all. And that's nothing to say it's bad or anything. That's just not, that's just something I don't do. I do a lot of, posting raw footage and on my uh my actual youtube i've got a strange handle it's called silly westies and silly uh, YouTube. What? silly westies <laughs> that's some of our dogs but it's silly westies oh and okay I post a, a lot of raw uh video of uh of the uh the sipping switching shows years ago okay. so there's a lot of that footage that's uh i could probably even link that to you too but uh there's there's just not a lot of uh, uh, organized videos of uh, of how detailed you know how uh, not just setting up the modules but building modules. There's just not a lot of that out there. Um, probably if somebody wanted to create, that might be a good uh, 
possibility, but most of us, you know, it's just it's just not our thing into doing that. It's mostly into the the operation and setting up the layouts, you know. Okay. Yeah, the the April '09 model railroader issues the best the best generally distributed photographs, and they show it from start to finish. You know, here's a sheet of plywood. Here's the module stacked up in its carriers. That's the the alpha and omega of it, and you can get it all from the photographs because the text is horrible. So no. all you got to do is find a 2009 <laughs> issue. No. We were also in Great Model Railroads, too, now, right, Joe? We were in great yeah, model we were in Great Model Railroads. Uh, that was, I think, January, February 10. Um, I thought it was 06. I don't know. Well, we, we've been in several magazines yeah. several times. I'll bet. We were in uh, and, and Real we, Model we've Journal. Lost, I wrote an article. Yeah. And some of these articles were done without our permission. That's the odd thing. The, 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 the Railroad Model Journal, the guy came to Detroit. Was it Detroit? No, it was Cincinnati. No, it was he took a bunch Cincinnati. of pictures. And we didn't even know who this guy was. And the next thing we know, we're being published. And uh, it's like, well, son of a gun, look at that. That would have been good to know. Um, and he lifted all the text off our website, off Mark Gugliotta's website, and attributed the article to him. And Mark didn't know a thing about it. We, nobody knew anything about it. It's like... You guys are published again. Really? Where? RMJ. Really? Uh, and son of a gun, there it was. Now that's online. You can get that one online. Somebody has posted a bunch of these old defunct magazines. Train line, train world, train something, train journal, train something, because I've run across it. Like I say, if you, if, you, if you Google sipping and switching, a lot of this stuff just turns up all by itself. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and and one last thing before we sign off is the name Sipping and Switching Society. Yes. When we formed up 27 years ago, we didn't have a name. It didn't think it was important. Okay, what are we going to call ourselves? I don't yeah. know. Well, there was a friend of ours, long dead, who uh, referred to us back in the 70s as the Sipping and Switching Society. So somebody says, well, why don't we call ourselves that? And said, well, at least we won't be confused with anybody else. So, okay. So we called ourselves the Sipping and Switching Society. Uh, and immediately people were like, well, what do you sip? And our response was, uh, what do you got? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so, so, so we, we hit the Internet, I think, in 2002, our first website. And immediately there were five other model railroad clubs called the Sipping and Switching Society, one in California, one in Chicago, one in, in Newfoundland, one in Anglesey, England, and one in New Zealand somewhere. Matter of fact, I, when we were in Cincinnati, we walked up to the desk and the guy said, hey, you stole our name. We have a round robin group and we're called the Sipping and Switching. It's like, oh, really, you know? So, so anyhow, the, the first thing that comes <laughs> to mind is, is, okay, there's a literary reference somewhere to the Sipping and Switching Society. There can't be five parallel universes. So I asked all of these guys. I talked to every one of these, these uh, representatives, every one of these groups, including the one in New Zealand. I says, okay, here's the issue. Great name. We love it. I'm sure you love it, too. We don't know what it means. Our geezer's dead. And... Uh, I got exactly the same answer from all of them. We don't know either. Our geezers are dead too. <laughs> so whatever, whatever the literary reference is, Mr. Google and I cannot find it. Cannot find it. So 
there's got to be a literary reference somewhere that sipping and switching society's turned up, but we don't know what it is, and nobody else that uses the name does. So either. that's when we ended up to distinguish ourselves from then. We ended up saying of NC or North Carolina. Yeah, we had that to add of North Carolina us from everybody else. Well, and that's very logical. That makes sense. Yeah. Right. Because I'd have bet good money way back when that nobody's going to have a model railroad club named Sibbing and Switching Society. And I would have lost that bet five times over. Uh, strange <laughs> things happen. I, I think you're right. I think you're right. Strange <laughs> things happen. No doubt. No doubt. You mentioned serendipity a while ago. There you go. Another instance. Yeah. 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 It, it, life is a strange thing. The older I get, the less I understand of it, the more entertaining it becomes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, before we uh, wrap this up, is there any update on the O-scale Pullman standard uh, boxcar? And- oh, uh, I, well, yeah, I think Jim's uh, scratch building it right now, and that's the update. <laughs> uh, I was thinking about the Genesis version from Athern. Oh, the Genesis version from Athern? He, yes. He, he's trying it out for himself. Oh, okay. <laughs> Prototyping it for you. Yeah, he's yeah, that, that's building it. the prototype. <laughs> See, when you come out with the thin, you know, the guys at the sipping and switching, hey, let's have an O-scale branch over here. We'll put a watch car in there. Our technology works in any scale. There you go. It does work in any scale. And and we have always advocated that if you're going to do lightweight waffle boxes, it doesn't have to be to our pattern. That's right. It could be to any pattern. As long as you have a template and you build waffle boxes correctly, it'll work in any scale. There you go. Uh, But, you know, we go to train shows. opportunity. Yeah, we go to train shows and watch these people struggle trying to put NMRA 5740s together. It's like, I, I truly have a deep sorrow for these people. Uh, <laughs> okay. they'll, they'll spend a day and a half to put up a lap that's a quarter of our size, and they'll have 40 guys doing it. Uh, we used to set up, we set up in Baltimore at Timonium seven different times, starting off in 2003 and ending up in 2011. And we were always right across the hall, uh, right across the, the aisleway from the Four County guys, which is Howard Zane's house band. And they've been to uh, probably 120 uh, Timonium shows. They, they were always there. Nice bunch of guys. Beautiful loud. I mean, their scenery is top drawer, no doubt. And they'd have 40 guys working on that layout for a day and a half. And I was teasing the, the president, uh, uh, his name was uh, Knox, Jim Knox, and I, I would tease him. I said, dude, you've got enough guys to eat this thing in a day and a half, and you can't set it up in a day and a half. Uh, uh, <laughs> and it, it, it's, it's painful. It's painful to watch these guys struggle for hours and hours and hours. And uh, and still have you know really good looking crummy running louds. Uh, not not theirs in particular. The 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 embryonic part of our system predates the NMRA. Predates the NMRA. Uh, the 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 SLO club in California, of which uh, Mr. Paul Maris was a member of once in his misspent youth, 
that's where yep. Amtrak came from. The the, uh, the SLO people or some subset of the SLO people published the Amtrak specifications in late 73, early 74, somewhere in there. And we got a hold of that book in the summer of 74, and we were building modules by the by the spring of 75. Uh, yeah, that was Jim Fitzgerald uh, up there out of the Tascadero, kind of the, the father of of N-Track. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it kind of spawned a lot of things. But you know what's really, really interesting, Joe, is uh, Joe D'Elia from A-Line, Xerox copied this. Uh, for lack of a better term, it was kind of like a book. And it was just a module. It was called like the Modular Handbook, and it was published in the early 70s. And towards the end of the book, there's uh, a lot of different people that are on there and kind of tracing them down to where are they now. A lot of them went into Fremo over in Europe, Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. It, they they kind of have a, a similar sort of approach as as, as your group does with uh, with you know the hook and peg type system and these uh, their modules in Europe snap together just like yours. Um, so yeah, it, it seemed like modular railroading went like had an early fork in the seventies where uh, groups kind of went your way and another group just kind of went the Jim Fitzgerald way. Yeah, well, in in trying to do research on modules, another another fascinating subject, I tried to come up with, you know, who's got the oldest published specifications? And it turns out that the oldest specifications I can find anywhere are from the East Penn Traction Club in Philadelphia. They had an O-scale streetcar system, oddly enough, flush-ended, that they published in 1967, and then they they published an HO system in 1968, and those became the de facto national standards and still are. That is the standard, really? and they're the ones who wrote it and published it. So the Intrac standard, I don't know if there's any cross-pollinization there or not, uh, but uh, the, the Intrac standard coming out in late 73, early 74 was the first non-traction specification. It's, it's anywhere on Google. Uh, hmm. So hey, could uh, hats off to those guys for pulling it off, because somebody had to be yeah. first. Somebody had to be <laughs> first. Uh, now the Fremo guys, the Fremo guys, the earliest copyright I can find on any of their publications is uh, 1982. And okay. uh, the, it, in those days, they had uh, similar to what you guys have now. They had 25 millimeter. Uh, cutbacks on the rail, but not the ties and ballast. And right. uh, they switched over to flush in somewhere around ni- early 1987. Um, and I don't know how they did it. I, 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 there is this there is this uh, Yahoo site that uh, Tim Moran has called uh, Speed Mode 2017, which he started in November 2017. And I made some remarks in there at his request, uh, you know, because as you well know, some of those Fremo people are just rabid nuts. They, they, think <laughs> they think the specifications for Fremo came down on the backside of the stone tablets Moses brought from the mountain. Um, and and somebody said, well, you've got to have one-inch cutbacks. You just absolutely possibly have to have it. And I said, well, the, the Krauts, the Krauts, 
did it in Fremo, asked them. I think a big tank battle near the French frontier was involved, but they managed to pull it off anyhow. They went flush in. Uh, uh, just ask them how they did it, and they'll tell you. Uh, you know, after Battle of the Bulge, it was Battle of the, uh, of the Setback, you know? <laughs> yeah, really, really. Um, now, now, you know, being, being Krauts, they're anal. And keeping up with their publications, my German's not that great, but uh, they, have, they have what they call a scenery profile, and there's about 20 of them. So not only yeah. do you, 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 you register your module with a scenery profile so that they have this big database. They build these giant louts in, in the summertime in I, indoor ice skating rinks. Have you seen the pictures? All over of the place. Oh, yeah. oh my God, I'd pay $10. And they're not open to the public. That's the amazing thing. You pay, you pay the equivalent of like $50 to get in, and you set up these giant louts and run for two weeks. Oh, man, I'd give a quart of blood to be able to do that. Um, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> uh, and, and, and they do these, these, pro, this, these scenery profiles, and then with their database, they know how to put as many modules together as possible with the same scenery profiles. It's astonishing. It is astonishing. And these, these are probably the largest uh, modular railroad setups ever done. Yep. Ever yeah. Yeah. I'd love. Small. I'd love to just go and check out their modular layout. I would too. Oh man, but, but I, that's on my bucket list, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, I could say. I mean, I mean, our biggest layout wouldn't be a third the size of theirs. I mean, these are sixty thousand square foot layouts, and and I mean, they're like over the horizon layouts. It's just amazing to yeah. me. Uh, but hey, the the crowds tend to be a little bit uh, anal on that stuff, you know. And I can understand it. Go home or go, you know, go big or go home. I, I get it. I get it. Uh, the fact that we can do a third of what they do with, you know, less than 20 people. <laughs> they probably have yeah. battalions, organize you into battalion uniforms or something before you start building this thing. Oh, man. Uh-huh. But I'd, yeah. I'd love to be there. I'd yeah. love to be there. Yeah, it, it, the stories. There's so many stories. I remember way back when, was this four years ago now, when the Fremo people decided to change from CJ302s to uh, APP30s on the plug? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, that was funny. And, you know, I haven't posted on the Fremo list, but like two times in eight years. I, I'm not a big poster. So, so there's this guy making a remark, okay, who's going to vote? How are we going to count the votes? And and uh, who's eligible to vote? Somebody who has a module, somebody who plans to build a module. Uh, if a person has two modules, he get two votes, and on and on and on. Okay, fine. You know, I don't have a, I don't have a horse in that race. I don't really go down to the S's. You will see sipping and switching of North Carolina listed. I don't know That's how in the funny. hell that happened. But uh, I posted. I posted <laughs> several years ago. I posted onto the sipping uh, onto the Fremo list because there was a guy who moved into uh, middle of nowhere, southwestern North Carolina. And boy, there's a lot of nothing down there. Um, he said, "I'm in the Fremo, and I'm down here in Podunkville. And uh, are there any Fremo clubs?" And I posted a couple of paragraphs. I said, "There are no Fremo clubs in North or South Carolina." And that if you are truly Fremo, you're the only guy. 
However, if you come to Raleigh or any of the other cities that we do sipping and switching, we have a, a conversion module, and you can hook up and play with us. And if anybody else sees this and comes out of the woodwork, you guys are free to bring your Freemo modules too. And if enough of you show up, we will assist you in organizing a North Carolina Freemo group. We'd be more than happy to do that. And that's in the list. That's that's part of the history. And whoever is in charge of the list says, well, hey, that's close enough, and throw us into the Freemo Club list. And if you don't believe that, go look it up right now because there it is. I saw it last week. Because you have the world's smallest Fremo module, which is one inch long. It's yeah, one right. inch, no, it's one. Yeah, one inch long. It's one inch, inch tall and thirty inches wide. Yeah, with five wooden ties on it. That's it's funny. And if, and if you go to the if you go to the picture of Detroit, you will see a picture of a strange looking guy. That would be me driving those spikes to make the connection from Ken's module to the first Fremo module in Detroit. That, oh wow. That, that's a picture of me making that connection. So when we took the when we took the layout apart, uh, the standard two inch uh, filler rails, uh, we just pulled them out of the spikes. The spikes are still in the in the ties, so you just have to slide the fitter rails into the spikes and connect them up, you know, normal, like you would at, uh, <laughs> at any Fremo setup. That's pretty cool. Uh, That's you know, pretty when cool. when Fremo set up in Milwaukee which was what, eight years ago now, seven years ago? Uh, Tim Moran, uh, you know, I was there with, with the Cincy Boys, and I was in there on Thursday, and the Cincy Boys, being young and stupid, decided to go sit out in a swamp somewhere in Wisconsin where the BNSF and CN crossed so they could take pictures of the trains that were sitting downtown. Uh, I said, no, I used to do that, but the mosquitoes carried off the better part of my brain, so I don't do that anymore. Uh <laughs> So I'll just come in and hang out. So so I come in, and now there's 40, 50 guys trying to put this, this Fremo layout together, which turned out to be 40 feet wide and about 105 long, pretty good-sized layout, with two reverse loops that nestled in against each other, and otherwise it was a big oval. And uh, Tim Moran comes over, and he says, uh, can you give us a hand? Sure, Tim, what do you need? He says, well, we've got this wide junction here that doesn't quite work. I, I can see why. Can you fix that? Well, yeah, but it ain't going to be pretty. So I need uh, I need some needle nose pliers and some number twenty brads and uh, just leave me alone for an hour and I'll get it. So I got it. The next thing I know, I'm helping put this layout together because it turns out that I'm the fastest two inch bridge rail putter in her that they had. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm I'm doing three to anybody else's one and, and uh, I'm helping leveling the layout, this and that. And yeah, they had the Seattle light and the targets and everything set up and I've got a smile from ear to ear. And after a while, some of the old guys got like, why are you smiling so much? Because this isn't my playoff. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> my <laughs> over there. <laughs> that's funny. That was great. I had a great time. That, in fact, that's where the Speedmo specifications changed hands. I gave Tim Moran yeah. the specification for Speedmo right then, right there. Call back tomorrow, and we'll do it in Latin. Okay. Oh. <laughs> Eximum domino espresso fremo. <laughs> All right. Well, I appreciate your guys' time, Kent, Joe. Yep. Where do you get the bill for this? You think we're doing That's it for okay. free? <laughs> yeah, there you go. As long as you donate it to a worthy cause. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Okie doke. Well, listen, I hope you get something out of it. I hope it's worth your time because I had a blast. All right. No, I think it'll be good. Ken. Yes, yes. I never really liked you that much. Oh, well. (laughs) (laughs) The feeling is mutual. Okie dokie. Be good. Bye-bye. Safe journey. All right. See you guys.